Welcome to another edition of the Gary Anderson F1 show. I'm Ed Straw and joining me as always is Gary Anderson to offer his answers to the problems of Formula One. He's always got uh, plenty of uh, good solutions but today is the second part of our listener questions. We uh, we did a podcast about this last week with Gary answering all sorts of uh, questions on a wide variety of topics and uh, it's the same again this week with uh, another batch of your questions. So I'm going to go straight in Gary with uh, with, with a question uh, from Daniela on uh, Twitter saying what are your thoughts about a super season covering the end of 2020 and summer of 21 so kind of combining it like the like the world endurance championship obviously in these strange times as a possibility something like that may need to happen yeah it may need to happen I mean you know we were, we were intending to go into this season with more races than last season so we were sort of trying to drag it into a super season to be honest um, it's a difficult one to know whether you can you can combine the two years. And I suppose if you're going to have real stability, um, you do away with what we call pre-season testing in, in January, and if you can, or in uh, February, sorry, and you come up with a, a set of regulations that allow the cars to continue just through X races. Let's say we had a, a super season, it was going to be 25, 30 races maybe, if you take the second half of this year potentially and the, all of next season. Um, you could even stop next season a little bit earlier because obviously it might be possible at the end of this year to run some of those end of season races and then because of the way it's worked out not run them next year um, so you end up with a, a sort of half of this season and the half of next season put together as one um, but it needs the politics of it all sorted out and the first thing I think we need to see is when there is the potential to actually start uh, and when the first race might just be able to be Lots of races have been postponed, so there's people who want to put them on at some point in time, and that means going into some more, you know, um, sort of follow-on weekends, double headers, one weekend, um, maybe have two races. But it's not the way to do it. I don't believe. I don't think that's the right way. I think the best way would be to take the beginning, or when we think the beginning could be, to when the end needs to be at the end of next season, and see what races you can fit in through there. And you know, there are there are formulas now that are running through the winter um nothing wrong with that you know the formula one can follow the sun as such or follow the decent weather as such um and it doesn't matter they've got good wet tires and stuff so you know you could race at silverstone in, in november or december if you had to so if there's a will there's a way um and the most important thing is to have the will and uh, i think if they do that then once we see when it potentially can start this year then those plans could be put in place yeah, I suspect the intention is to try and get a, a 2020 separate season, whatever happens, as long as they can kind of get the eight races that the sporting regulations demand and then have a fresh start in 21. But like you say, we've got to see what happens in the world. There's uh, all, all sorts going on. Uh, the next question is casting back into the past from Kaelin Martin, asking what was the fundamental problem with the Jordan 198 at the start of the season? Did you want the car to run with the tower wings to get more downforce? That's one of the things that's been, been picked up. Obviously, the Jordan 198, Difficult first half of the season, superb uh, second half of the season with Damon Hill and Ralph Schumacher, of course, famously winning at Spa. Um, yeah, I mean, what was the, the problem? I think I know the problem. Um, I think we put the, the, the corrections in place for it. Um, the, the only problem was it, it took time to get on top of it all, which was a bit of a disappointment. You know, if you take the 197, the car the year before, with the Peugeot engine in it, it was a good little car. Um, Ralph... Schumacher and, and Fisichella in it. Uh, we had some good results. And you know, the, the continuity of Ralph going into the 198 meant at least we had one driver that was the same. So we could sort of f feed our way through all that stuff. We didn't get running 
very early because Honda had done a, a deal with an a, a man, a engine management system uh, company that were building the system, and the system was basically capable of, of running the whole car, uh, running, doing all the gear change stuff, clutch stuff, everything. So there would be one system doing one, one job of managing the complete car, engine and transmission stuff. Um, and that basically got delayed, never happened, and we had to change direction. Um, probably, you know, beginning of, end of January sometime, we had to change direction and go with a different system, Magnetic Morelli, um, not Magnetic Morelli, um, McLaren Electronics, sorry. Um, and they did a really good job of turning around a system that we had used on the Peugeot the year before um, because Peugeot had gone with their own system to go to the Prost. So basically, McLaren Electronics were sitting there with some ECUs, you know, able to do the job. I got Honda convinced, convinced that it was a good way to go because what we had was a major problem. And so we got up and running. But by that time, we realized basically we just had a car that um, it you could you could do you could do a decent lap in it. It would be okay for a lap, but the drivers didn't like it. It didn't make sense to them. There was there was something fundamentally wrong aerodynamically with the car that was causing them to not have confidence in the car. Um, and we were dramatically down on par from what the Peugeot had a year before. And when I'm talking about dramatically down on par, we're talking fifty horsepower, which is a, a major light switch job. Um, so. During this beginning of the of the year, because because we were late start and the season didn't wait for you, um, and we had to just get on with it, um, and it was trying to identify those problems, and it was trying to get Honda to react to the situation because the problem is that at that time they were, you know, very detached being in Japan, um, and as far as they were concerned, this this engine they'd built, it was called a Mugen Honda, but it was actually built by Honda, um, was the best was the bee's knees, and trying to. to you know, get them to understand that it was down in par was was difficult. And meanwhile, try to work out what was going on with the car that was not making sense because the car was, from the wind tunnel numbers we had, the car was better than the 197. And uh, sort of working on those two avenues, trying to find solutions, um, one day I decided to, to spend a bit more time looking at the steering lock aerodynamics. And I drove to our wind tunnel was we we're, we're based at Silverstone, and the wind tunnel we had was down in Brackley, which is like seven miles. I remember driving down there one day in my in my car, playing with the steering wheel, and thinking, what would I want the aerodynamics to do if I did this to the car, and going around the roundabout and stuff. And um, it was quite funny. It's just the way you do things, and your your head somewhere else completely. So I got to the wind tunnel and I sat down with one of the aerodynamics and I said, Look, you know, what do you think? Um, what, what would you expect to happen if you did this? And they said, I don't really know. I said, well, I would like it to do this, I think. Does that sound right? And we both sort of come up with a solution. Yes, this would sound right. I said, well, let's try to do some rudimentary tests on steering aerodynamics and see if we can, um, um, you know, pick something up. And the tests were very, very basic at that point in time, that afternoon, just doing stuff that you could do. Um, And basically what we could see was the aerodynamics, the center of pressure, and that moved the opposite direction to what, we thought it should do, or I thought it should do. So we thought, okay, let's let's find the solutions to these problems. Um, so it took us a little bit of time to build a kit of parts for the wind tunnel model that allowed us to actually run the, the, the steering properly uh, on lock in the wind tunnel. Um, and then once we got that done and got confidence that the numbers we were getting from it were real and we could repeat them, then we started to try to develop the car to make that better. And 
all of that came about, to be honest, uh, as a package for the British Grand Prix. And uh, Honda came up with more, more horsepower. Um, of that 50 horsepower we're missing, from memory they found almost 30 of it, which is a major step. Um, and we came up with a, a set of um, details for the car front wing end plate, side pods, and barge boards that allowed the steering to work the way we thought it would work. And that from that day on, the drivers thought, you know, they got they, they knew the car they had, because before that, they just didn't know the car. Depending on how much steering lock you put on the car, what it would do. Um, so they got the confidence in the car. We had a bit more power, and uh, away it went. Yeah, and it's worth just putting into context, the first eight races, not a single point. Last eight races, points pretty much every race, uh, apart from uh, apart from the Nürburgring, a 1-2 at Spa. Uh, podium at uh, Monza for uh, Ralph Schumacher. So yeah, the, the difference was very, very, uh, very stark. It was it was a little confusing at the beginning uh, in a way because you know Ralph was one of these drivers who'd always wring the car's neck. You know, he would he would dig a lap out of it somewhere. Um, but for Damon, he you know had too much experience to do that. To be honest, and it I was it was a bit surprising that that you know Damon he couldn't pinpoint the problem. I remember going to one test in Barcelona with him. Um, and for whatever reason on that day, maybe it was just the weather, the way the car was set up, whatever, you know, it was quite quick. And he was there on his own testing, and he was over the moon by it all. But, you know, you just couldn't get the continuity because, again, you go somewhere and maybe it's because you had a little bit more understeer or the grip wasn't the same or whatever. Just suddenly the, the problems would rear their ugly head and you just couldn't. But, as I say, it was more of a fact that the driver didn't like the car than then it really had a black and white problem. And that's why I keep pushing in my articles, I'm saying, you know, you've you've got to make sure that what you've got is consistent. If it's got peaky downforce or peaky performance, you're never going to get the car set up to suit that. It'll always bite you. So nowadays, make sure your car is, is a well-rounded package and that what you've got might not be as much as somebody else, but if it's with you all the time, you'll be okay. We've got another Jordan question to follow from Ben Payne saying, did the 191, 192 and 193, so the Jordans from 91 to 93, have a, have a different car or was it the same chassis? Because they all look similar. So was there carryover for money saving? How does that lineage of, uh, of cars connect? Well, the 192 was a different chassis, very similar. Um, it had, we, we exaggerated the raised nose section um, to try to get more air underneath the front of the car. Um, so I would say that the chassis was 50-50, I suppose. As far as the layout of the, of the chassis itself was concerned, it was more or less the same as the 191, but just with a raised front on it. Um, and then the, the, the 193 was the same chassis as the 192, again, for the fact that we, we made that decision to try to save some money. We, we went from, um, obviously, from the Ford engine to the Yamaha to back to the Brian Hart, so it went from a V8 to a V12 to a V10 um, in a very short um, amount of time. So we, you know, we, we had to save some money because basically we, we had overspent dramatically in 1991, or no, we hadn't overspent dramatically. We had spent a lot more than what any of us thought Formula One would cost. We had to still spent very very little, but the re- the realism of Formula One was that you know you need to spend a lot more money. So 192, the Yamaha deal was there to, to try to let us survive, and we did the best job we can. I think one of the areas, you know, the car, again, was the car was okay as far as the performance of the chassis was concerned. 
we had a sequential gearbox, mechanical sequential gearbox, and we had a problem with that where it was selecting two gears at once. So we had a few problems during the period with that gearbox. It was it was mainly selecting two gears at once through uh, flexing, through you know bits and pieces moving. So you could never make it happen, but the driver could just from the way he was changing gear and stuff. And the Yamaha engine was, you know, I've said on many occasions, it was a bit of a boat anchor. Um, it it was one of those sort of things. We, we, you know, we had them seizing on the stand, warming up. We had them, you know, blowing up on the stand. I, I got, I was hit by bits coming out of the exhaust pipe one day down at Penbury. We were testing with spitting bits out of the exhaust pipe on the stand. Um, very strange, strange things with it. But at the end of the day, it was it was very heavy. Um, they had this five valve solution in the heads as well, which meant that the engine was the top of the engine was very heavy. Um, center of gravity was very high on it but and the oil system didn't work it didn't scavenge the oil out of it so by the end of the season when we sort of got on top of all that stuff and and out today we made we made a pump assembly a scavenge pump assembly for the engine um to, to try you know to help to improve its performance and estoril which had a very long corner onto the main straight you know, it usually just fill up with oil around there. And if you if you went around that corner, switched the engine off, drove into the pits, there was no oil in the oil tank with the new pumps on it. Went around that corner, switched the engine off, came into the pits, and um, and the oil was all in the oil tank, so it was scavenging properly. And the speed in the straight was like 10 k's faster, just from from a different oil pump assembly. So lots and lots of things were wrong. And I'm not saying the car was, uh, was perfect by any means, but it doesn't have to knock your confidence whenever you've got a all these problems on top of yourself and you're just into the second year of Formula 1 it's, it makes it pretty tough I have to tell you I had a few sleepless nights but um, as far as the lineage of the chassis was concerned um, yeah, 191 192 was different but followed the same principles and the 193 was the same chassis And just while we're completing this uh, series of Jordan questions, now this is a common joke question, but I I think that I'd still like to hear your answer to it. Would you rather fight 100 chicken-sized Eddie Jordans or one Eddie Jordan-sized chicken? That's uh, that's from CGM via Twitter. I can't imagine you being remotely fearful of anything Eddie Jordan-sized, to be quite honest. No, not really. Uh, I think on a couple of occasions, Eddie's been a bit frightened of me. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, Eddie and I never really had too many battles, to be honest. Um, I suppose... One Eddie's or Eddie-sized uh, chicken would be easier than a hundred uh, hundred chickens. Eddie, no. Would you rather fight a hundred-sized Eddie Jordans, hundred chicken-sized Eddie Jordans, or one Eddie Jordan-sized chicken? Yeah, well, I think if I had to fight one of them, it would be the the one Eddie Jordan-sized chicken because I, I did I did that on a few occasions. But no, we, we got on pretty well through it all. You know, even even whenever I left or uh, and went away, it wasn't done. You know, we didn't get excited with each other about it all it was just one of those sort of situations but the one that does pop up the one uh, situation that does pop up that makes, makes me laugh now and again was at Magni Coeur in uh, 2002 and Fisichella was driving the the, the Mugen Honda Jordan and uh, we you know we practicing one thing or another the car wasn't a great car it was lots of reasons for all that sort of stuff but they had a front wing failure going through turn three and it went into the tyre barrier just where he joined the main straight. And basically it sort of rung his bell a little bit, so they decided it wasn't the right thing to race. Um, and uh, Arrows were there at that point in time and they'd just gone broke. They didn't practice and one thing or another. And Frensen had uh, gone off to the airport, Hans Harald Frensen, he, he drove for them. 
So Eddie decided that he would chase Heinz Howard Frensen to the airport, get him to come back and drive the Jordan the next day on the Sunday morning for the race, basically do the warm-up and do the race. Um, which we all said, no, look, that's not a great idea. And even the Honda people said, no, that's not a great idea. We don't want that to happen. But Eddie would not listen. Um, and it just this went on constantly. And then he brought in the part of the argument that Bernie thought it was a good idea and all that sort of stuff. And you never, you know, you never went against Bernie in those days at all. But it was not a good idea to put somebody in the car um, from scratch after you've had a front wing failure. You know, it's not it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right thing to put the pressure on Frenson. It's not the right thing to do to put the pressure on the team. Honda didn't want that to happen because they felt that, you know, Frenson would learn something and take it wherever, you know, all that sort of stuff. But Eddie just didn't want to listen. So uh, we had this situation where I went looking for him to express my opinion, which, um, yeah, I went looking for him to express my opinion. And um, he was in the motorhome and apparently disappeared up the, there's a fire escape and a, you know, a, a door out of the roof. And you can come down the back of the motorhome. He disappeared up this fire escape onto the roof and down the down the ladder and, and cleared off to the hotel before I could get to him to explain things to him. But we ended up not 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 running friends and I think we made contact with him, but Frenson said no, he didn't want to do it anyway. So at least one of us were sensible at the whole thing. <laughs> so from that we can learn that Eddie Jordan doesn't want to fight one Gary Anderson sized Gary Anderson. We know that. Um, it's probably not a good idea to do that, but as I say, I, I'm really, you know, I'm really proud of working with Eddie. He was, he was a character, um, and I don't think we ever had those fights. That, you know, there were never really battles. Yes, there was pressure, but that's life. It's, it was a job and it was work, and you know, I had pressure on him to get money in, and he had pressure on me to make a car that performed, and you know, all that sort of stuff. And you know, we met in the middle pretty often. Well, another question about, about your past. We're going back to the 70s here, asking for your view of Carlos Reutemann, who I think you'd have worked with at, at Brabham. What did you make of him as a driver? You know, on his day, a really, really classy driver, wasn't he? Yeah, Carlos was one of the most laid-back people you've ever met in your life. I mean, you know, and this is no exaggeration. I remember Paul Ricard in 1973. Uh, we had Carlos Reutemann and Wilson Fittipaldi were driving. Carlos was asleep in the side, up the side of the garage um, on sort of, I don't know what they were at that time, they were sort of like bales of something. There's a couple of them there, bags of this stuff. Um, and he was asleep there until like 10 minutes before he had to get in the car. We woke him up, got in the car, and uh, went out in the race, you know, drove round and round. I, I forget where he finished, whatever. But came back in, end of the race, laid back down again and went to sleep. You would never have known he would be missing just really. But on his day, as you say, a really, really good driver. He used to... He was quite annoying because he used to um, have a gear ratio chart and he would always hang it on the back of his hotel room toilet door. So when he was in the toilet, he could sit there and study gear ratios and he would change gear ratios four or five times a weekend, you know, whereas and small, small changes. You know, he'd come in in the morning and say, I was thinking last night about fourth gear. I could just go through that corner in this little bit longer gear and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he was one of these guys that if you did it, you, it would respond. Um, he would respond to it. So you had to sort of join the club and do what he wanted. And one of the things was, he, he, first race he won with Brabham's, I think it was the first race he won with Brabham's, um, we had this DFV and we had numbers stamped in the back of them. And this was DFV 111. And every weekend he would come to the race meeting and he'd look to see if it was DFV 111 was in the car. And if it was, he would have a good weekend. We got a bit 
you know, a bit clever about this. So we stamped little plates and put them on there as DFE one one one. So he had that engine every weekend for every race. You know, once we realised there was a bit of a psychological thing in it, but you know, it, it is about belief uh, in those days. And and he was very very good, very talented. Testing, we never really did any testing in those days. Um, it was one of those sort of situations where it was very uncommon to test at all. I remember we were at Zolder once, and um, we were doing we were doing a bit of testing with Goodyear, I think it was, and um, it started to snow. So we, we couldn't finish testing, but we had a, we were sponsored by Martini Rossi at the time, and uh, we had a, a cameraman there. They wanted to put a camera in the car when we went to Monaco to do a, a lap of Monaco with this camera on for a Martini advert. Um, so Bernie and, and Carlos, because it snowed, decided they were, were stopping testing, that was it. So they went off to um, the hotel, which is just a hotel across from the pits. And before Bernie left, he said, you know, put the camera on and I was, you know, Reutemann wasn't a small guy. So he said, you know, do a lap of the car and just see, because he wanted to pick up the driver's gloves, the rev counter and stuff, and just see if the camera position's all okay. So I was authorised to do a lap in an F1 car around Zolda, which seemed pretty good to me. Um, and uh, they went off to the hotel. So we got this camera on to suit me. And just as I was about to go out, um, Herbie Blash, who was team manager, um, came up and... Uh, Said, oh, you know, I better do it because you know, Bernie's not here, and you know, don't want responsibility, blah blah blah. So he got in the car. We had to adjust everything because Herbie's, you know, a foot smaller than me. So off he goes. And there's damp, damp patches still out in the track from when the snow came down, and uh, Herbie never came back again. And there's a, a sort of long right hander down the bottom, of the back of the circuit, as such. And he came around there, and fortunately or unfortunately for him, the, the camera was still rolling. But he came around there, lost it, and hit a marshal's post. And uh, basically drove the radiator through the front of the monocoque, and you know, did quite a bit of damage. And I met him walking back to the to the paddock, swinging his hel- swinging the helmet. He said, "Oh yeah, I just spun." He said, "No, no problem." Well, I saw the car and the bits driven into the side of the chassis. One of the catch fence posts had gone into the chassis, so it's a good good shunt. But anyway, we got the camera, got the film rolling, and you could see Herbie coming around, and suddenly the. The horizon changes as the car starts to spin. Herbie lets go of the steering wheel, and and that was it. The next thing was he's in the, in this Marshall's post with the, in the catch fencing in the Marshall's post. So the unfortunate thing was that Bernie thought that was me driving the car because I was supposed to drive it. So uh, I I got a lecture before the, you know we realised that it wasn't actually me who was driving the car. I got a lecture from Gordon Murray because um, I phoned up to say about bits that we needed, and he just wouldn't speak to me. I said. But, but what's wrong with him? So well, you shouldn't have crashed. I said I didn't. You know, it wasn't me. But, so yeah, um, testing was not something that, that really we did much of in those days. A little bit here, a little bit there, but nothing dramatic. But Carlos was a very good driver. Uh, another question from CM Parfait: If you could bring back a forgotten F1 team from the past into the current grid, what would it be? Are there any uh, any lost teams you're a particular admirer of? Well, it simply would be Brabham, um, just from the fact that I had the pleasure of getting to know, you know, all of the Brabham family. Um, I had I worked for Bernie after he had bought it. Um, I got to know Ron Turnack through his role and me competing with him in F3. So I sort of felt that I had a history of the Brabham, you know, how it came about, what happened to it, and all that sort of stuff in, in, in me. And that was my first job in Formula One. And I think it's a good name, and it would be sad that if it doesn't come back at some point in time, somewhere along the line. Um, but uh, yeah, I, without doubt, you know, the rest of them, 
um, it's it's one of those sort of situations where they had class, they had depth, they had they come through that era of you know from from coming from nothing to something. They built it themselves, like with the Cooper and that sort of stuff, and like Bruce McLaren and though that era of of creating something from nothing and racing it yourself and winning is just something that's very hard to to substitute and uh, I think Brabham would be the name that I'd, I'd go for. Yeah, good choice. Of course, Brabham uh, slid away at the end of uh, 1992, unfortunately. Uh, Lotus Raptos asks about the Peugeot engines that you ran at Jordan. So that had been from 95 to 97. You had them after McLaren had ditched it. How, how would you rate them and maybe compare them to the Mugen Honda engine? You've already touched on that a little bit uh, uh, earlier. But uh, yeah, how, how good were those Peugeot engines? Because they were talked about at the time on occasions, as being the most powerful engine in Formula 1 sometimes? Yes. Um, talk's cheap, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. I'm not criticising saying it wasn't the best engine in Formula 1. I would say that, you know, I'd rather go backwards a bit and say that we used Brian Hart's engine in 93 and 94. It was a bit early for Brian in 93 because it was just, you know, it was just a prototype. But 94, it was an engine um, that I think was, you know, was a good package. And then, obviously, going to, to Persia the next year, it, the difference was night and day. Um, the engine itself was actually, the concept of it wasn't very good. And I, and I can explain why. It might take a little while. But the, basically, they had the gear train up the back of the engine instead of at the front of the engine, which meant that the camshaft drives were at the back. And because of having that gear train up the back of the engine, it meant that the rear main bearing on the crankshaft was quite a lot further forward on the engine Um than it would be if you didn't have a gear train going up the back. So they with the clutch on there and the crankshaft and these engines at that point in time was was relatively weak as such, it must you could say. It's always bending a little bit. But because of this rear main bearing being so far forward, it meant the clutch the clutch was going round um at a bit of a wobble and basically it used to fracture the clutch and the clutch would, would fail. So we had that all during ninety five. First year we had really clutch problems. 94, if you've seen Martin Brundle's um, Brazil Smoky debut into turn four, I think it's called, um, that was that problem, basically. The, the clutch disintegrating going through the oil tank. Uh, we had that happen quite a lot, and Persia's solutions to those problems were, were pretty poor, and we had to end up ourselves by putting a much lighter clutch on the, on the engine, and that's what led to something that's currently around now, was moving the clutch from the engine onto the gearbox and you're taking it off the crankshaft which meant the crankshaft could be lighter again and we also went down from a clutch that was uh, 180 mil diameter we designed with AP racing um, a clutch that's actually 98 millimeters diameter which a lot of teams bought into and used and I have to say that the whole thing was based on having to do it because of the Peugeot engine um, and it was a fantastic little piece of kit, absolutely fantastic. But as far as performance was concerned with the engine, um, they had they, they spent like five times the money that Brian Hart spent, a little bit more than that. Um, the engine itself was not as it was a it was good. It wasn't as good an all round engine, but there was problems there as well. Um, the clutch, as I say, the, the camshaft area, oil scavenging, the air valve system was a problem um you know Rubens will tell you about it at, at, at um hungry last corner last lap basically just the engine switches itself off because it uh, hasn't got the air pressure 
Um, so they had lots and lots of things, and they were very hard to work with. And again, I used to go there every other week to have a meetings with them about stuff. And you know, they were a good company, lots of good people, good budgets and stuff. But you know, it just it wasn't as good as what it was said to be. Now, '97, I think we both put in a big effort. The '97 car and the '97 engine. 1997 car, 1997 engine was very good. Um, the package was really good. And I would love to have taken that into 1998, but politics politics took over and we didn't. The engine for, for 1998 um, would have been in the region of 765, 770 horsepower. At that time, was a, was a lot of horsepower. And uh, we ended up with a, the Mugen Honda engine, which had in the 600s, 690-something. So we had a big deficit when going to there. But it took three years with Peugeot before we got to that point. And that was a lot of hard work for Peugeot and a lot of hard work for us to try and keep the pressure on to do the right stuff. And we got there in the end, I'm happy to say. Um, But was it the best engine in Formula 1? You know, um, McLaren had it for a year and didn't want it anymore. So... I think that, that tells you we, we got it. We worked with it for three years, and I think we got it to be in a pretty good package. But 1998, I think it would have been as good an engine as in Formula One, but we didn't get to use it. Uh, the next question uh, appears to be playing on the, the Irish connection about uh, Tommy Byrne coming from Finn Coyle. Um, Saying, looking back, what what could you have done to tame Tommy Byrne and make him successful in Formula One? Obviously, Tommy Byrne, a phenomenally talented driver, never quite managed to deliver on uh, on that talent. Um, there's a great book about him by our colleague Mark Hughes. Well, Tommy drove my Anson in 1994 Formula Three car. I also drove in Super V in an Anson um, in the States on a few occasions. And I mean, as you say, exceptionally talented driver, but had no. Um, no, you know, responsibility to life, I suppose you might call it. He, you know, he, he, he believed his talent would take him there somehow, but there's obviously a lot more to it than that. And even in those days, um, you know, he, 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 just, he just didn't, I suppose, treat the right people the right way. Um, but talent-wise, yeah, very good. I don't, I don't know what you'd have done with Tommy to actually make him focus and see that he needed to do things differently. Um he got led astray. I think you know the the initial stardom and success that people around him sort of benefited from um, was what ruined him. I don't I don't think he ruined himself. I think he ruined uh, a lot of people around him. Um, sort of ruined him and took him into areas where he shouldn't have been. Um, so, I, but I don't know how you would have fixed it. I remember sitting with him one time. I think it was Austria, and saying to him, "Tell me, what if this doesn't work out? What are you going to do?" You know. And he said, I have no idea, not a clue. So, he, you know, he, he did a very, very good job. Would he have been, you know, another Ayrton Senna or Lewis Hamilton or whoever? Um, I don't know. On on his day, he was very, very good. Um, but he, he definitely needed to sort of realise that it's a bigger job than just driving the wheels of a car. And he didn't realise that and never really, really realised that. So... Um, I'd love to have seen him have a better opportunity, but you know he didn't, and that's that's it. There's, I mean, there's probably a lot of drivers out there exactly the same. Um, you know, it's funny because it was somewhere the other day, and I walked down to James Weaver. I haven't seen James Weaver for 
10 years probably, 15 years. Um, and he was another one that was, you know, very, very good. Um, but just, you know, these drivers came and went and um, some make it and some don't. Yeah, good career in sports cars for uh, for Weaver, but yeah, as for for Tommy Byrne, yeah, just just the two F one starts for a not very uh, competitive Theodore team in in eighty two. Um, and the final question we've got is uh, again about your career from Raymond and Barra, asking if there was ever a time you came close to joining a team which nobody knew about. Um, so, do you have any uh, any secret tales of of almost moves? Um, well, there's 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 a couple of three here and there at the end of. End of 1991, I I went and had a long chat about potentially um, going to McLaren, um, but it was it was you know it, it wasn't something that I could see myself doing. I just did it because I was asked to come and have a chat about it. Um, you know, I've always liked the small team, so that's the one that I'd always have you know, always pushed for type thing because it was just the team that I, you felt comfortable in. I think it was a bit of confidence, lack of confidence on my behalf as well to be in the small team because, you know, there wasn't enough of us to be overpowered. Um, going to a big team had always been, been a problem. Um, I think in 1996, um, I had an opportunity to potentially go to Ferrari. Um, but, when I spoke with John Todd, it didn't seem as though he knew why he wanted me to go there. Obviously, there was a big change going on with, with Ross and all those people coming. Um, and I, he just wanted some more, you know, some more heads there that you know, could find their feet and find the solutions to the problems. And I didn't fancy doing that either. Um, and then, in, in, uh, again, in 96, I actually had Flavio Briatore standing in the kitchen uh, wanting me to go and work with them. Uh, well, it was Renault Benetton at that time, I think it was. But again, it was the same old deal, you know. It was just, you're, you're going to become part of a, a big team. Uh, you know, you're going to be a small cog on a big wheel. Um, and uh, finding your feet and using, you know, being able to express yourself would probably have been quite difficult. Uh, and then, obviously, whenever I left Jordan in the middle of 98. Um, that was the time whenever I talked with Wilkinshaw about going there. Um, I talked with Alan Prost about going there. And I talked with Jackie Stewart. And again, you know, Jackie was the one that knew what he wanted, basically. He just, you know, was able to sit down there and, and thrash stuff out and do it. The others just seemed to be not quite sure why they were there or what they were doing, but Jackie had a, a business plan and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I've had a few opportunities in my time to do stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, I've, I've always followed my heart and, and I like the idea of the small team, uh, not the big team. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I stuck with what I did because I felt comfortable within it. Yeah, it certainly uh, worked out very well. And of course, yeah, Stuart, uh, won a race with uh, with them and I should say because obviously you won't say it Jackie Stewart also speaks very highly of you as well Gary so uh. he, he was a great guy to work for you know just so genuinely honest and and on the ball you know knew what was going on knew what you could do knew what you couldn't do all that sort of stuff just just really a pleasure to work with the guy uh, well, that's it for our, our listener questions now. Thanks very much, Gary Anderson, for your insight, particularly uh, that batch. There were some uh, 
very interesting stories of uh, Dave's past. So if you do have any other questions you'd like to throw at us, do uh, do get in touch with us on our social media channels on at We Are The Race. We're all over the place on that. Do check out therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for all of our uh, written material. Even though there's not much going on in the world of Formula One, there's plenty we'll be uh, we'll be putting up on there, including loads of stuff from uh, from Gary himself. But we'll be back next week for another Gary Anderson F1 Show podcast. Thank you.